following true story was recounted from a fisherman in Australia. He said they were out literally in the middle of the ocean uh, fishing for squid, and here's what he said. He said, while we were fishing, my friend and I noticed in the water, remember this out in the middle of the ocean, two pink flamingos, a dinosaur, and a unicorn floating helplessly out to sea being caught in the western current. He said, upon pulling our lines up and moving closer uh, for inspection, we found that inside of those things were four young ladies in a huge inflatable animals who were panicked and desperately in need of rescue. And so apparently uh, they set off uh, for a fun day at the beach. And they got these huge inflatable uh, rafts. And so they start off and weren't paying attention. And But when they finally looked up from their phones, true story, uh, they realized they were out in the middle of the ocean. They said almost to another island before they realized where they were. And that island was actually shark-infested waters. Now, as someone who's watched Jaws somewhere between... 90 to 100 times, I'm thinking, how in the world does someone crawl inside of a unicorn or a flamingo and then not realize they're drifted out into shark-infested waters? How does that happen? And so when someone began to ask them, they said, how did that, how'd you go from being on the shore to way out you know, across the ocean? Here's what they said. We just wanted to get a few good pictures for Instagram. Of course they did, right? And so two lessons from this story. Lesson number one, social media will in fact be the death of someone, all right? And lesson number two is simply this. Drifting is dangerous because it's so subtle. You start off, you're close to the shoreline, it's safe. Uh, You get inside of this raft, you can't see out, it's so large. You're looking at your phones and before you realize you've gotten caught in a subtle current and you've drifted off halfway out into the middle of the ocean. Had these girls been caught up in a riptide, they would have been screaming and yelling, help us. But drifting is so subtle that if you're not careful, you can start off one place and before you realize it, you're in some other place altogether and you're in danger. And the same thing is true spiritually. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for a message titled, The Danger of Drifting. Danger of Drifting. Uh, if, you know that, uh, if you listen to me teach, uh, you know that uh, I have joined in the chorus of people who make fun of uh, others who speak Christianese. And Christianese is the language that we often use inside the church. It's insider talk, and we use phrases and words that no one outside of church uh, even has a clue of what we're talking about. And so we have poked fun at that. Uh, no one else knows what we mean when we say uh, pleading the blood. Like, no, no one even knows what that means. Uh, when we talk about a hand clap of praise, people have no idea what we're talking about, all right? And if you're not convinced that that's true, uh, then just go to work or school tomorrow. And when someone asks you, hey, what'd you do this week? And just say, you know what? I spent the better part of my weekend putting out the fleece, all right? They, they have no idea uh, what you're talking about. So I've joined in the chorus of making fun of those things that we say that no one else. However, there is one word that we say inside the church um, that, that people outside don't understand, and it's a word that used to be popular in church, and I'm, I've advocated often that we need to bring that word back into fashion uh, in the church, and that word is the word backslider. Can I get a hand clap of praise for that word? Is that not a great, right? And so I don't, I don't know what it is, that word, it just feels right to me. It just satisfies the affections of my heart. Uh, listen, if you've never looked at someone and thought in your heart and mind that they were a, a backslider, then you're probably a Methodist, all right? And so the reality is, uh, I just want to build the case that this is a biblical word we should bring back, all right? 
Uh, the Old Testament used the word backsliding to speak of those who have been near to God, but then sin has allowed them to drift away from God. Uh, in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, it says, Our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you. See there? It's in the Bible. Uh, later on in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 21, it says, Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will uh, rebuke you. So I think we should use that word because it's in the Bible. And if you don't like using words that's in the Bible, uh, that's testimony of the fact that you're a backslider, all right? I don't know what it is. I love that word almost as much as a Pentecostal loves a tambourine. I just, I love, I love that word. So, in all seriousness, a backslider is a person who just kind of, they, they didn't start off like, oh, I'm just going to rebel against God. They just kind of drifted away from God's spirit. And there's danger in drifting because it's so subtle. If you're not careful, you'll wake up one day and go, how in the world did I get here? Well, that's exactly what he's going to address here in Hebrews chapter 2. So uh, let's look this morning. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 as he talks about the reality and the danger of spiritual drift in our lives. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this. Therefore, uh, what's, what's therefore, therefore? If you've heard me teach you and we ask that, therefore. So chapter 1, if you were with us, chapter 1, he's building the case for the supremacy of Christ, even exalted above the angels. That's all chapter 1. So so he says, basically, when you understand who Christ is and his exalted supreme position, therefore, okay, uh, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we heard, lest we, here it is, drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and every disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witnesses, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so as I share with you, when we began this series a few weeks ago. Uh, this is not a verse-by-verse series. It's more of an overview of the book of Hebrews. So we're just going to pick a chapter week and, and teach through a theme. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to preach through verses 5 through 18, the second half of chapter 2. So let me give you the cliff notes. Chapter 1, Jesus is exalted above all the angels. He just rattles off all these reasons why. Uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, he comes back and says, oh, not only is Christ better in his position over the angels, uh, Christ is better because he suffered on our behalf. The angels never did that. That's all verses 5 through 18. Christ is supreme in his suffering on our behalf. But tucked in between the supremacy of Christ's position, chapter 1, the supremacy of Christ in his suffering on our behalf, the end of chapter 2, is this little pastoral warning here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, as you go through the book of Hebrews, it's all about Jesus is supreme for 10 chapters, and then for three chapters, here's what he says. So, based on the fact he is supreme, you should persevere. That's what verses uh, 10 through 19 through 13 through 25, the end of the book. But, in all of those 13 chapters... The writer of Hebrews, who we're not totally sure who it was, the writer of Hebrews interweaves five little pastoral warnings. He said, this is true, this is true, but guard your hearts. This is true, this is true, but listen here, this is true. And so this is the first of five pastoral warnings. And the warning here is, yes, Jesus is exalted. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus has suffered. However, you can believe that intellectually and theologically, and your heart still drift from that truth practically. And we've all experienced it, have we not? And so as he begins to walk through this, um, what is uh, going on in their lives is there's incredible persecution. Uh, they're, they're living for Christ publicly, but these are Jewish converts 
to Christianity before they were kind of under the law and the feasts and the rituals and the customs of Judaism. Then they were converted to Christ. And once they started living publicly for Christ, they began to get persecuted. Uh, Nero, the great uh, uh, emperor who just tortured Christians, uh, began to persecute them openly. And so there was a temptation for them to, to just kind of drift away and say, you know what? Back when we were living for, for Judaism, no one bothered us. No one cared that we observed these days and feasts and customs and rituals. We just were under the red. Life was peaceful back then. But as soon as we popped our head above the sand and started living openly for Christ, life got incredibly difficult. And they began to wonder, would it not be better just to go back to the old covenant when life was easier? And their hearts begin to drift towards that thought. So he's kind of leaning in and going, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. And anytime you try to go against the culture around you, uh, listen, there is going to be pushback. And you have to decide on the front end if you're going to persevere. Otherwise, spiritual drift will take place uh, in your lives. And so he's kind of giving this warning uh, here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And so in, in this little warning... Tucked in between these statements on the angels, chapter 1, the end of chapter 2. In this little warning, he basically makes one principle I want to walk through this morning, which is simply this. Deliberate diligence is required to avoid drifting. Say that ten times really fast, all right? We're only going to make one point this morning. This is my only chance at alliteration. That's why I word it that way, okay? Deliberate diligence um, is required to avoid drifting. So there's a lot of alliteration there. And you may think, well, I don't think alliteration's of God. Uh, let me just tell you, you're probably backslidden, all right? So, no, I word it that way because here's why. Because that's what the text is teaching. That, that, that's what he uses over and over is this idea that, that if you're not diligent, if you're not holding fast, to your confession of faith, then the natural drift of not only your heart, but the cultural current will drift you away from Christ. And so to hold fast requires diligence to avoid drifting. Uh, look at verse 1. Look at the language he uses about the diligence required. Therefore, uh, we must give, here it is, more earnest heed. Does that, does that not imply effort? More earnest heed. Let me read that verse 1 in a couple different translations and, and paraphrase this morning. The NIV says this, we must pay the most careful attention to what we've heard. Uh, the Living Bible paraphrase says this, we must listen very carefully to the truths we've heard. The message paraphrase says this, it's crucial that we keep a firm grip on uh, what we've heard. So, so over and over, no matter how you read it, what he's saying here is, listen, the natural drift uh, is away from God because our hearts are prone to wander. But when you add on persecution and cultural pressure and, and affliction, guess what? It will only speed up that process. Following Christ was never meant to be easy, and, and if you think that you can just kind of drift along, then, then you will drift, but it won't be towards Christ, it'll be away from Christ, and so therefore, deliberate diligence is required if you're going to hold fast to that which you claim to believe. Passivity must be rejected at all costs. Look at verse 3, what does he say? He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. How do we escape judgment if we neglect a salvation? Now, uh, this is, let me just be really honest with you. So I've been teaching the Bible uh, professionally, I guess, uh, getting paid to teach the Bible for 16 years. I've got an undergraduate degree and a seminary degree in Bible theology, church ministry, all those kinds of things. Let me just be totally honest with you. When I read these verses this week, I read them and sat back uh, from my computer screen, and here's what I thought. I have no idea what he's talking about, all right? 
Like, I, I'm not totally sure what this means, and why does he phrase this, and, and what does he mean drifting? Can I drift away from salvation? Well, all those kinds of things. So, uh, so in understanding these uh, passages, I just want to walk you through some questions that I had to walk through personally before I could understand what was going on here. So the first question you've got to understand is simply this. Uh, who, who's, who's he writing to? Is he writing to Christians or non-Christians here? Because that, based on how you answer that, from that, it totally changes uh, the meaning of this passage. You're not a Christian. You're going to drift away from God. Of course you're going to experience judgment. But how in the world is he writing to a Christian, and how can they drift away and experience judgment? What is he talking about? And so uh, here's the reality. When, when you look through this, there's a little debate on this, but this is what uh, I've, I've landed on here. I believe he's talking to Christians. Let, let me tell you why. Number one, the entire focus of the book of Hebrews is all towards persecuted Christians who were wanting to shrink back and go back to Judaism. Living for Christ was hard. And so the whole context of the book is written to that group of people. So number one, the context. Number two, go back to chapter, uh, or verse one in chapter two. Therefore, we, plural. So when the author includes himself in the conversation, uh, if these weren't Christians, we'd have to conclude he's not a believer either, right? Has God ever used an unbeliever to, to capture the words of Christ in Scripture? Never. And so what he's saying is, hey, we, what, what, what's we mean? We, those of us who used to live under the covenant of law, but we've now been transformed by this covenant of grace. We've all experienced that, have we not? That's what he's saying there. And then you get down into chapter 3, and he says this in, in uh, or verse 3. He says, uh, for how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's say if we reject salvation totally, but if we just neglect salvation, we'll begin to drift away from our profession of faith. So who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians who are struggling because life has gotten hard. All right, so here's the second question. So if, in fact, he's writing to Christians, we've, we've landed on that, then what does it mean that a Christian can drift away? Is he talking about they, they, can, they, they lose their salvation? Matter of fact, some of the strongest chapters in the entire Bible against the doctrine of teaching eternal security or once saved, always saved, whatever phrase you, you, you grew up with, is actually found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 and chapter 10. We'll get to those. But even here in the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about uh, Chris drifting away. What, what in the world uh, is he talking about? How does, a, what is it, well, how does a saved person drift? How does a saved person neglect salvation like verse 3 talks about? Uh, there, listen, there are hard questions all over. Do you see now why no one ever teaches the book of Hebrews? I told our staff the second weekend, I said, hey, this was a bad idea, all right? This is hard. So, but here's what we say all the time. We don't teach around tough truths. We teach through them, Amen. And so I'm going to walk through this so you can understand, so we can get to application that is actually accurate, all right? Go back, let's break down some of these tricky things and put on your big boy pants, all right? So uh, verse 1, uh, let's go back to verse 1. Let's answer some questions in the text before we get to application. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to what? To the things we've heard. What, what, what is he even talking about? He's talking about this covenant of grace. He's saying, hey, listen, we, we all, we, we've, what had been passed down to us was the covenant of the law under Judaism. But we've all now become uh, partakers in this covenant of grace. We've all heard this message that grace, not the law, transforms our hearts. We've all experienced it. And once you've tasted grace, why in the world would you turn your back on it and go back under the laws? What he's saying here. So what's he talking about turning away from? It's the gospel itself. All right, that's what he's describing there. 
uh, in verse 1. And so uh, he begins to make the appeal of why they shouldn't turn away, okay? So let me walk you through this because it's a little tricky. Uh, so go to verse 2 now. So verse 2, he says, hey, um, in verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast. Well, what does he talk about? Well, last week, here's what we learned. That in their culture, uh, they, their tradition taught this, that when Moses got the law on Mount Sinai, uh, they, they, they taught and believed that angels actually delivered the law on Mount Sinai to Moses. And one of the reasons they believe that is because the end of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. And every transgression and every disobedience received a just reward. What's he talking about? One of the reasons they sat back and said, listen, the law had to be from God because it's so perfectly just and God is a just God. And it's just because every transgression got its reward. In other words, they had what was coming. The law is so just. God is just. It had to be from God. I bet even angels delivered the message. So he said, just like you would hold that, the covenant of the law because you would argue that, that you know, it had to come from God and angels delivered it. Uh, then it. Now skip down to verse 4. He says, just like you believe that about the old covenant, here's why you should believe this new covenant of grace and not turn from it, even though life is hard. Look at verse 4. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Okay, so what's he saying here? Basically, he's saying is this. Here's why you should believe this covenant of grace or the gospel. That yes, you thought the law was true because it was so just and God is just, therefore it had to come from God. But here's the deal. Why in the world would you not believe the, the gospel of grace when God himself uh, validated the truthfulness of its message using signs and wonders and miracles? Now, why was that important? If you're listening, say amen. If you're listening, say Amen. All right, a bunch of Presbyterians. All right, so here's why. Because the Bible says this. It says that the Jews sought after signs and wonders, but the Gentiles sought after wisdom. Why is that? Because the Jews said, you know what? God doesn't speak to anyone but us. They're like Baptists. They're early Baptists, right? Like, like we're God's chosen people. God only speaks to us. And so when someone came along and said, hey, uh, Acts chapter 10, 11, God wants us to take the gospel to non-Jews or Gentiles, the Jews sit back and said, there's no way, bro. I mean, listen, we're God's chosen people. That hasn't changed. There's absolutely no way. And God said, as a matter of fact, that's true. And I'm going to prove it with signs and wonders that you cannot deny I'm at work in taking the gospels. So he says, just like you believe the old covenant was true, how much more should you believe that the new covenant is true when God has performed miracles to validate it? So, it's true, all right? So what? Verse 3, look at verse 3. How shall we escape? Escape what? Judgment. All right? I know it's not a pleasant word, but that's exactly what he means. How shall we escape judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? What in the world? does that mean he's writing to christians we've concluded that from the text and the context so how in the world does a person uh, drift from salvation verse one to the point where they neglect it so bad they're in danger of judgment uh, verse three so i'm going to learn you something so listen closely all right here's what he's describing this is important for the author of hebrews there were two options you were either holding fast to your confession of faith despite persecution, or you've walked away from it giving evidence that you never belonged to the Father in the first place, and therefore you're in danger of judgment. 
That's what he's describing. Those are the only two options. What he's saying is, hey, if your faith is genuine, yes, I know life is difficult. Yes, I know that Nero is horrible. Yes, I know that some of your friends and relatives have been put on stakes and tar has been put on their head and they've been lit on fire to light up Nero's garden. Yes, I know you've witnessed that. However, if you walk away from the gospel of grace and go back to Judaism, even though it's easier, you'll give evidence by your drifting and never returning. You didn't belong to the Father. All your knowledge of the gospel was intellectual, but it was not personal. So hold fast. Now, is this all over the Bible? This idea of persevering? Genuine faith perseveres? It absolutely is. Let me just share some places in Scripture where this is all over. Uh, Mark chapter 4, uh, what's known as the parable of the soils, uh, is this. And I'm gonna, this can be a little interactive, all right? So just pay attention. Uh, verse 3, Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing some seed, some fell by the road, and the birds came up and, and ate it. So, uh, yes or no, is there fruit if the birds ate the seed? Does the fruit ever show up? Yes or no? Right? Good. Okay. Verse 5. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it uh, had no depth of soil. So it's fruit, right? No. Listen to verse 6. After the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root, it withered away. So if the plant withers away, is there fruit, yes or no? Okay. Here's the third one. Uh, Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Is there fruit? Yes or no? Okay? Here's the last seed. Other seeds fell into the good soil. And they grew up and increased and yielded a crop uh, that produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here, here's the point of the parable of the soils. What he's saying is this. If there's no gospel fruit, it never took root. And what he's saying to these Jewish converts say, listen, if you shrink back and drift away from what you've said you believe, uh, listen, it was uh, intellectual, but it was not personal because the fruit did not remain. When the heat came and the sun scorched it, like verse 6 in Mark 4, uh, you shrank and there's no fruit. That means there's no root. Now, is this in other places? Absolutely. What about a person who was uh, religious? Let's just make it plain. What about a person who went to church a lot? How many of you know people who you used to go to church with who are not in any church this morning? Would you just raise your hand? Right? You need to call them today and say, you are a backslider because that will warm their heart's affections, all right? <laughs> They're like, you know, I didn't know. I'm going to go to church next week, right? What about religious people like that? Right? Listen, Matthew 7, Jesus himself Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me. So so let me break that down. Common. This is common. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out deacons in your name. That's not what it says. We cast out demons. That was a joke. You'll get it later. Demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I'll reply, I never knew you. Go and depart from me, you worker of iniquity. This person was incredibly religious. Listen, John chapter 6 tells us there was an incredible crowd following Jesus. And right down about verse 60, down through verse 66, Jesus said, hey guys, listen, gather in, come in close. Um, You've been following me around. Now let me tell you what it's really like to be my disciple. He lays down the gauntlet of what it looks like to follow him, to give up your own life. And the Bible says this around verse 66. And many of them 
walked with him no more. Uh, Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer, uh, he got around, he was following Jesus. He said, you know what, what must I do to receive the Holy Spirit? Because he saw the apostles doing all these miracles, and they called him on the carpet and said, hey, bud, you're not interested in receiving the Spirit. You just want to do magic like we did, right? And they exposed him. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Let me read this to you. Verse 18, 19. Little children, it's the last hours you've heard the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it's the last hour. Now, listen to verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So in other words, they were walking with them. They would have continued with us. Now, here it is. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I just rattled off verse after verse after verse of Scripture where it says this, hey, no matter how difficult life gets, one of the marks of genuine conversion is persevering fruit. In the midst of persecution, true believers may drift. They may get entangled in sin. But sin for a genuine believer, it is a season, not a lifestyle, that when their heart drifts, and listen, sometimes it may take months or years or even decades before those people come back to the Lord, but one of the marks of genuine conversion is that person eventually comes back to the Father giving evidence of genuine conversion. Because if there's no enduring gospel fruit, then there was no root. So what's he saying here? Look at verse 3 again. Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape, escape neglect? Or how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Escape what? Judgment. What's he saying? He said, listen, if you drift away because it's gotten hard to live for Christ, if you drift away, you will not escape judgment because if you drift away and do not return, you give evidence to the fact you never belonged to the Father in the first place. All your knowledge of Christ was intellectual. It was not personal. You don't belong to him. You will not escape judgment. So what's the danger of drifting spiritually for a person who professes Christ? The danger is this, is that if a person is drifting and drifting and drifting, uh, they should ask hard questions about the assurance of their salvation. Right? They, they should ask hard questions. Do I even belong to the Father in the first place as evidenced by I've drifted and drifted and have no desire to return to the Father? For 10 months, um, when I first started in ministry, uh, when I came home from Liberty, uh, I worked two jobs. I worked full-time as a corrections officer, and then I worked part-time as a youth pastor, which looking back, they weren't that much different. All right, so let me set up. And uh, I remember being a youth pastor, and it was 10 months. And, you know, listen, I'm just going to say this open. I hope this is being recorded. It was the 10 greatest months of those kids' lives. I just want to acknowledge that, all right? But I'll never forget, even though it was only 10 months, and then the pastor left, and they, they hired me at 24 years old to be the pastor. No degree, no experience. I mean, incredibly wise and beautiful and all those things, but no, no, right? So, but here's, so 10 months I was a youth pastor. So, so here's uh, something I'll never forget in those 10 months. So in, uh, when I got there as a youth pastor, the, you know, got to know the kids, and, and this one kid's name kept coming up. And I said, you know, I, I keep hearing you guys talk about this kid. I said, but I've never met him. I said, what's going on? They said, oh, he got saved and he was on fire, uh, but now he's, 
you know, he's, he's just rebellious and he's partying, he's, you know, all those kind of things. And he makes fun of us for still going to church and those kind of things. And I said, oh, okay, I said, well, let's pray for him and invite him, encourage him when you see him, all those kind of things. Well, here, here's what happens. So, um, right about the time that it's time to go to youth camp, mysteriously, he gets repentant. Right? Like, youth camp's coming up, I'm feeling called back to God. A.K.A., youth camp is fun, I want to go. All right? So he asked the other kids, he said, hey, I've not met the new youth pastor. Um, ask him if I can go to camp. And the kids challenged him on his lifestyle. And they said, man, you're, you're so far from God. You're mocking us. You're those kinds of things. And, and here's what he said to them. I will never forget this. Here's what he said. He said, my name is in the book. I can do whatever I want now. And so they came back to me and they said, hey, this is what he said. What do we say to him? I said, you tell him this. Go back and check the book again. You know what he's saying in chapter 2, verse 3? He says, if you drift so far that you have no intention of ever returning, you can no longer be assured of your own salvation. If you neglect salvation to the point where you drift and drift and never return, then how will you escape judgment? The answer is you won't. You give evidence you never belong to the Father in the first place. You see, the danger of drifting is simply this. You can no longer be assured of your salvation. You cannot walk with the Lord and be in intimacy with the Father. He says you can no longer be assured of your salvation. That's how dangerous drifting is. And here's the reality. It happens before you even know it. And let me just say this, and this is a hard thing to say, but it, it's an honest thing. Don't provide false assurance to someone whose life has no enduring gospel fruit over the long haul or a lifestyle just because they prayed a prayer at BBS or some youth camp or they walked down an aisle or they got emotional at a revival or a funeral. If you do that, you're inoculating them against genuine conversion. God looks upon the outside, or God looks upon the heart, man looks upon the outside, 1 Samuel 16, 7. So, so do we know who's really saved and who's not? Absolutely not. I can't remember if it was Spurgeon or D.L. Moody uh, said this quote. He said, I believe that God has some, the church doesn't, and the church has some that God doesn't. In other words, you're going to get to heaven. You're going to look around and go, whoa, what are you doing here? I had no idea you'd be here, right? And then there'll be other people you're looking for, and they're not there. I mean, I think the only surprise, the only thing that will not surprise us in heaven is the absence of cats. But other than that, like, you're going to look around and go, look at you. You're wearing white. Who knew, right? And so I believe they'll be surprised in heaven. But let me just say this this morning, in all seriousness. If someone has no enduring gospel fruit in their life, I don't mean like they got stirred up for a couple days or a couple services. No, the lifestyle of their pattern of their life is gospel fruit, obedience. Don't provide false assurance to that person. I don't care when they prayed a prayer and when they walked down out. Listen, even if they have the same last name as you. Do saved people stumble? Yes. But it's a season, not a habitual lifestyle, where they drift and never return. And Hebrews chapter 2 says, if you neglect salvation to the point where you turn from the gospel of grace and never turn back, you drift and drift and drift and never return. You can no longer be assured of your salvation. And if you can no longer be assured, you're in danger of judgment. That's what he's saying in verse 3. Drifting is dangerous. I've sat across, I, I can't tell you how many times. I've sat across from people whose lives have been 
just broken on the rocks of painful consequences from choices they've made. And with tears in their eyes and their hands, or their head in their hands, they've looked at me and said, how in the world did I get here? You see, drifting is subtle. Wasn't like they woke up one day and said, I'm going to turn my back on the Father. I'm going to ruin, I'm going to make every bad, I'm going to ruin every relationship I can. I'm going to destroy my testimony. Today's the day. No, drifting is always subtle. That's why it's so dangerous. You wake up and wonder, how in the world did I get so far from the shoreline? So let me provide some suggestions on what causes drifting. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, not an inspired list, but it's just based on 16 years of being a pastor and observing kind of people in conversation. Let me just give you some practical things here. All right? Uh, one, one of the things that causes drifting is this, emotional discouragement. That's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, we're, we're living for Jesus, finally. We've been transformed by, by the covenant of grace and the gospel. And, and it didn't get easier. It got harder. And we're discouraged. And so because we're discouraged because life has been hard, we're just going to go back to what was easy. And the temptation for everyone is when you go through hard times, not if, when you go through hard times, is to drift away from the Lord and say, God, I thought if I did right by you, you would do right by me. No, listen, that may be a cliche, but it's not scripture. The Bible says this, that Jesus leads us into affliction. Why? Because it transforms our character and deepens our and tests the genuineness of our commitment to him. And so the reality is emotional discouragement, if you're not careful, emotional discouragement will cause you to drift to the point where you can no longer be assured of your salvation if you don't return. Here's the second thing that causes drifting, temptation. You know why temptation causes, and temptation is often strongest in seasons of emotional discouragement. You know why? Because when you're emotional discouraged, you know what temptation says? Hey, I know that you're, you, know, you don't, you don't you, this is a compromise if you do this, but here's the deal. If you'll do this, you're not hurting anyone, nobody knows, and, and I'll trade you. I'll give you pleasure in exchange for your discouragement. Listen, that's, that's powerful, is it not? I knew it was wrong, but I've been feeling bad for so long, I just wanted to feel good even if it was wrong. Temptation causes the drift, emotional discouragement. Here's the third thing. Legalism causes drifting. You know why? Because one of the surest ways to tell yourself, I'm not drifting on the inside, I'm, not, I'm walking with the Lord, is to, to, to look at and argue from the outside. Look at all the things I do for God. Look at all the things I don't do because of God. Surely my heart is right because of my habits. No, 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 listen. You can do the right thing and have a wrong heart. You can be drifting and be in church. Fourth one, this, this, is a, this is a strong one, I think, is the fear of man. Addiction to approval, addiction to affirmation, addiction to acceptance, whatever you want to describe it. The pull of what people think about me is greater than the pull of finding my satisfaction in Christ. Yes, to do that, whatever it is, to compromise, I will, it will be drifting away from God. But if I don't do that, then I'm going to be uh, on the outside, and I desperately want to be on the inside. And so even if it means compromising my own values, this person will approve, and I want their approval and their acceptance so great that I'm willing to drift away from the Lord. So, how do we recognize drifting before it comes dangerous? How, how do we realize where we're going before we wonder, how did I get here? 
Let me just hit these real quick and then we're done. Number one, what are some warning signs? Number one, diminished appetite for prayer and the word. How do I draw close to the Father? Through prayer and the word. How do I grow in intimacy? How does God communicate? Prayer and the word. So a diminished appetite for prayer and the word is a sign of drifting. I saw this on Facebook this week. It said, make sure Satan has to climb over a lot of scripture to get to you. Diminished appetite for prayer and the word. These are all alliterated. I couldn't help myself. Secondly, distancing ourselves from faithful followers. Can we all agree that before a person's life comes off the rails, they just start avoiding other faithful followers? They have all kinds of reasons, work and the kids' activities, and we've been traveling, and you know, Susie's had the sniffles, and, and they just have all these reasons why they can't be around other followers of Christ, gathering together, being built up, being held accountable. Listen, they're drifting. When you start avoiding other faithful followers, good chance you're drifting. And the third thing is downplaying sin. Sure sign you're drifting. Things you would have never compromised in before, now you've got a reason why God knows your heart. And he does. The problem is you don't. It's deceitful, wicked above all things. Jeremiah 17, 9. Now, if you're here this morning and you're in church, it would appear that you're not drifting, right? But you're here this morning, and as we've opened up God's Word, it has cut your heart in two and exposed your innermost thoughts and desires, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And God has exposed the fact that you're drifting. And Maybe you're wondering, because here's what happens when we drift for a long time. What happens is when we drift away from the shoreline, what happens is we stay out there sometimes. You know why? Because guilt and shame is a heavy anchor. And you're sitting here wondering, what, what would God say? What would, I, I've, lived, I've lived this way. God knows what I'm doing. God knows what I've been watching. God knows what I've been... God, listen, what, in the, what would God say? Listen, I don't have to wonder what God would say to drifters. That if you would turn back your heart to the Father this morning, He would run towards you, throw a party, and proclaim, this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's been found. Hallelujah. You see, the good news of the gospel of grace is that no matter how many steps you've taken away from the Lord and no matter how long you've walked away from Him, it only takes one step in the other direction to receive His forgiveness and to come home to the Father where you belong. Would you bow your heads this morning? Your head bowed, your eyes closed, no one's looking around, respect the privacy of this moment. People are doing business with God. I just wonder this morning, in your heart of hearts, the place where God already sees, I just wonder if God has leaned into you this morning and spoken to your heart that you're drifting. And if that's you this morning, then here's what I want to ask you. 
honest before God, I just want I just want to pray for you this morning. I just want to pray for you this morning that you would have the courage, you would be so overwhelmed with God's offer of grace that you would turn back to Him this morning. You say, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me if you would. If you're here this morning and you're drifting and I can pray for you, would you just raise your hand up so I can just say, pray for me, I've been drifting spiritually. Amen, amen, amen. Anybody else? Amen. Anybody else? Amen, amen. Anybody else? Amen. Honest before God, I'm drifting. Anybody else? Amen. Let me just pray for you this morning. Father, it is a painful thing to have our hearts exposed by the Word of God, but it is a profitable thing. And Lord, drifting is so subtle that we desperately need to have our hearts' affections exposed by the word of truth. And so, Lord, as convicting as it can be, we are humbled and grateful that you love us so much that you'll do whatever it takes to bring us back into fellowship with you. And so, Lord, for every hand that was raised, for every hand that should have been raised, Lord, I pray they would come to the place, not only they've confessed it now, but, Lord, they would turn from it, they would repent and turn away from that pattern of drifting because it's so dangerous. And Lord, I pray that they would be convinced this morning by the truth of your word that as they turn back towards you, you are running towards them. You want to put a ring on their finger and a coat around their neck and say, welcome home. And so God, we're grateful that the God of second chances is not a cliche. It is true because of grace. And so Lord, thank you for loving us even when we drift we are grateful and we are humbled by your love help us to live as if that were true we pray in christ's name and for the glory of the father amen